Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. This episode is going out on the 9th of August and it's a time of great stress for families and particularly for students across much of the country um, here in England because tomorrow on the 10th of August, both A-level and GCSE results will be announced. And it's not normally done like this, but obviously circumstances because of the pandemic are very different. Um, and the same thing happened last year and it last year particularly served as a reminder of how fundamental exams are both to education and how we measure education and so Dominic we thought it might be interesting to ask why that is and yeah. uh, where, where did the idea of exams come from how did they evolve what's the everything has a history doesn't it and exams are no different um, Abs- yeah I first did, I did my first exam Tom when I was almost eight so we had formal exams from the age of you know from whatever year that is at my school and, and the headmaster would announce the results in reverse order oh, at, at assembly oh, i mean like some the eurovision people, some people some people may say that's that's bad i i thought it was brilliant actually i love because you always you always came top did you i oh uh, well I, it's not for me to say it's not for me to say how i did oh, but i used to walk popular. i used to walk out of that assembly with a massive smirk on my face put it that way probably utterly i mean if there's anybody from my school listen to this they'll this will just confirm all their worst um fears well i think dominic in that case we need to unleash on you and your monstrous smugness. <laughs> one of the one of the country's leading educationalists, um, Daisy Christodoulou, uh, author of um, three books, um, founder of a company that is a kind of Daisy. Basically, your company. Just quickly explain it because it's it's kind of revising the idea of exams, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. So hi, hi Tom, hi Dominic. Um, yeah. So our company we're called No More Marking. Um, we have a different technique that we use for assessing essays, assessing extended pieces of writing. It's called comparative judgment, and it's not new. It's not something that we invented. It was invented back in the 1920s. But what we've been able to do is uh, kind of plug it into a piece of software, which makes using it much, much quicker. So what teachers do, instead of reading an, an essay or a piece of writing and marking it against a rubric, what they do instead is they'll see two pieces of writing on screen, on their computer screen, They'll read them both and they'll say to themselves, which is the better essay, which is the better piece of writing. 
and they make a series of decisions like that. And teachers from across the country will make a series of decisions like that. And then we combine all of those decisions to come up with a measurement scale for every piece of writing. So it's a different way of assessment. It's much more reliable. It's more valid. Um, and it's, it's pretty quick as well. So exams is something you've, you've mm-hmm. thought a great deal yeah. about. Um, I'm going to doubly embarrass you, first of all, by um, telling you what Amanda Spillman, head of Ofsted, how, how she described you. Um, a fountain of energy and inspiration, Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes rolled into one. Wow. And Dominic, that couldn't be better because we've got Sherlock Holmes coming up. That's yeah. our next episode. Who's Moriarty, so- in this, who's Moriarty in this analogy? Who's Dr. Watson? Well, I think I'm Dr. Watson. You're clearly, with your fiendish ability at exams yeah. and doubtless long division sums, you are <laughs> yeah, Moriarty. Are. The Napoleon of exams. The, the Napoleon, <laughs> exactly. Um, but Daisy, also, uh, I mean, essentially, we are your second favourite podcast. Is that right? Because your favourite I mean, is our sister know, podcast. Yeah, that's, that's, that's we cool. Have Ways, done by my brother and Al Murray. Mm-hmm. All about the Second World War. And that's I am, bit- yeah, I'm a fan. I quite like it, yeah. You have a drinking game, is that right? You have a drinking game that you play when you're listening to this World War-themed podcast? I think, you what- know, Tom's just, just throwing me under the bus here, aren't you, Tom? So, um- <laughs> what do they do? They mention a panzer and you and you drink a pint uh, of meths. I think they, they're great phrases. Um, whenever they talk about an elite picked group of, uh, you know, an elite group of picked men, uh, you know, any sort of combination of those words, you have to drink, so... Yeah. Tom, we should have we should institute yeah. a uh, rest is history drinking game or bingo card type arrangement, shouldn't but we? But I think I think our, our episodes are so varied that it would be very difficult for people. But every time you mention something being sacral, that should definitely <laughs> that should definitely be one of them, shouldn't it? Well, I don't think I repeat myself at all. I think well, I say well, something new every moment. You do well. Maybe we could throw this open to the listeners and see if they've got any suggestions for um, for a rest is history drinking game. But anyway, we we are being diverted. Um, Daisy exams where do they begin so the sort of famous example of where they begin in the famous sort of prehistory is in is in china so they go back an incredibly long way in china uh much much you know earlier than the the, the, we start using them in the west um so as early as kind of really about the the seventh century they've got the origins of of exams yeah um got the origins of exams in china uh, being used as um, a means of selection for the civil service, so that's the the kind of really big history with them in in, in China. And these are written written exams, are they, Daisy? So they they seem to start off as as maybe an oral interview, but they quickly kind of evolve into something that is written, uh, and they quickly become like quite systematic, quite standardised. There's a whole kind of national infrastructure involved in uh, administering them. Um, so certainly you've got things in the West, perhaps in a bit more of an ad hoc way that, that might look like a, uh, what we think of as exams, but nothing, as I say, as extensive or standardised as, as what's going on in China. And in fact, in the West, in the 19th century, in the 18th and 19th century, when a lot of reformers are looking at the civil service, a lot of them are keep going back to China and looking at what's happening there and praising it or critiquing it or thinking how we can do, do better. So John Stuart Mill he talks about it in On Liberty. He talks about the, the Chinese exam system a bit there and the, the Chinese system of government. So it's something that when you get reformers in the 19th century thinking about how we should use exams in schools and for employment, that they are going back and looking at what's going on in China. And is that why we call top civil servants mandarins? Yeah, it absolutely is. So um, there's a Jesuit, uh, Matteo Ricci. He's one of the first, I think maybe the first Westerner to, 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 to visit China to actually kind of see what the, the Chinese state is like. I think he goes there in 1601. Um, he spends a lot of time preparing for it. Um, you know, he sort of learns Chinese and um, he spends a lot of time kind of finding out what there is to know, know about China at that time. And he is really impressed by the exam system, the way they select 
uh, the way they use the exams and select the kind of best and brightest to, to, to run the country. Um, and he, he writes about it a lot and when, when he comes back. And that's, again, where a lot of people in the West are sort of catching on to it, getting interested in it. And, yeah, it seems to be he's the one who um, therefore comes up with the term Mandarin for, for a civil servant right. and is really impressed with the quality of all these civil servants. So let's unpack this a bit. Uh, so 7th century China, I guess what you need to have exams, you need a bureaucracy, a, a sort of national bureaucracy that can kind of either roll them out or bring people in to, to take the exams. But you also need a, a pretty high degree of literacy, don't you? I mean, people need to be able to, if, if there's a written element, you need an awful lot of people who can read and write. And in the West, certainly, that's not a lot of people. So, so and I imagine even in China, you're talking about exams within quite a small segment of the population, aren't you? Because surely a lot of Chinese peasants can't read and write. Yes, it's really interesting. Yeah, really, really good point. And so um, I suppose the 7th century is the, the very sort of earliest origins of them, and then they, they, they grow and grow, as I say. Um, but but yeah, it's definitely true. A lot of people who have written about it, I think including Matteo Ricci, have sort of reflected on the fact that um, if you look at maybe countries in the West, uh, what, what they're doing at the time, China's instituting this 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 big programme of exams it's 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 pretty different. I, I don't want to come on this podcast and have a go at the heptarchy. I know Tom would really have told me that would be another <laughs> That's never game there. moment. Um, <laughs> yeah. But a lot of people who have written about this have reflected that as China's China's bringing in a kind of exam system at the same time as in in England you've got the heptarchy, um, which as I say on most podcasts people will probably you know say it reflected badly on the heptarchy. But I don't want to say that. Yeah. Um, you can't come so on this um, you can't yeah, come you're, on this you're podcast abs- and be rude about Anglo Saxons. <laughs> That's, um, so. I think also the exams, these exams in China, they're in classical Chinese and they're on the Confucian classics. And classical Chinese is not the vernacular. So for everyone who's studying them, they're having to learn another language almost. Um, I suppose it's a bit like you could say it probably is a bit like Latin in, in medieval Europe. That right. It's really interesting. It's a language that kind of isn't the vernacular, but serves to maybe unite lots of different vernaculars. <laughs> um, so as a kind of nation building a sort of nation nation building system it, it probably has that in, in, in common and you're right it's not something that the sort of chinese peasants are doing but the numbers do get up to being being pretty big i mean certainly you know if we fast forward a bit but by the 19th century um you are looking at two or three million kind of sitting the the basic exams two or three million people this is so pro- there's, there's several stages of exams there's, there's there's a couple of different stages there's like a basic local one then there's an intermediate and then there's the palace exams, which are the, the kind of top, top, top ones to, to become the, the kind of top mandarins. Yeah. Um, and in terms of people starting out, the basic, uh, the basic ones, yeah, you know, it's, it, it gets into the millions. Obviously, by the mid 19th century, the population of, of China is uh, 350 million. Of those yeah. millions who are taking yeah. them, how many yeah. kind of, well, so how many, how many get pass exams and get places and how many reach the absolute top? So this is where it gets really interesting. So um, for anyone sort of struggling, thinking about maybe not getting their first choice exam at a university place now, or um, if you have got your first choice university place, the system over time got increasingly, increasingly harder to get these top spots. Um, and in fact, um, lots of people have, have kind of implicated the failure of the exam system to reform um, and kind of provide more roles as, as one of the factors in, 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 in particular, the, the, the Qing dynasty in the 19th century and in, in, in some of its, its troubles and its downfall. Because, again, by the mid 19th century, you're looking at maybe two or three million people kind of setting out on that journey, trying to do those basic exams. But the very, very top roles, uh, you're looking at perhaps, you know, um, it's, it's, it's I, I think on average, it averages out about maybe like a couple of hundred. 
okay right um and then the the you know leave the top jobs aside for a minute even the intermediate ones so if you pass one of the intermediate exams you can still get a kind of civil service role but what's interesting is those numbers um don't really increase over time and keep pace with japan uh, with china's population so um what you're looking at is as i say i think the population mid 19th century is about 350 million and the the number of kind of you know sort of civil service jobs available there is about, about half a million but that hasn't increased in a couple of hundred years um even as the population's increasing the people who are going for are increasing so you're getting more and more people uh taking these exams uh, more and more people kind of studying um spending and it's it's they're hard exams you know you've got to learn this it's all these uh, classical chinese characters you've really got to start from a very young age you've got to put a lot of time and effort into it um and yet the the numbers you know the numbers of jobs that you're getting are fixed and are not really going up so there's kind of increasing pressure on on the system and that's classic kind of revolutionary material isn't it overeducated uh disaffected middle class kids i mean they're the revolutionaries down the ages Absolutely. So I think this is where it gets really interesting, really interesting parallels with with today. So, you know, um, the there's really interesting stuff being written at the moment by Peter Turchin, who has this quite statistical approach to history. And his argument is that you can pick out and I don't know whether you guys will like this or not, but you can pick out some kind of key metrics, uh, statistics over history and use those to predict revolution. And his argument is that the most important metric, I think he picks out like three or four but one of the most important is, I think he says even the most important is um, what he calls elite overproduction. So the idea that you've got some systems in your society that are generating people with elite education, elite aspirations, but there aren't enough elite kind of roles or jobs for them to go into. Uh, and he talks about modern America as an um, example, that the number of senators has kind of stayed constant, even as he's, one of his favourite graphs is the number of law graduates has really exploded. Um and I think China is definitely a kind of parallel here, China in the 19th century, that you've got this civil service, uh, you know, sort of almost fixed number of, of roles, but you've got more and more people uh, with that education, maybe expecting that they, they should get one of those and that they are well educated. They have studied for a long time. They do have this knowledge of the Confucian classics and, you know, the, the jobs aren't there for them. So, so yeah, really interesting to think of it in that light. So, Daisy, the... the um the the people who study for these exams are they often the children themselves of civil servants because that's a kind of a feature of today isn't it that people who go to elite universities meet other people from elite universities and produce children who then go to elite universities and so it perpetuates itself down the generations so again some debate about this and again lots of parallels with where we are so there also seems to be the suggestion that over time um the kind of social mix of people get winning, you know, passing the exams, getting the, the, the top jobs seem to narrow. And I think they've done some work on kind of, you know, um, sort of the names and the family, family links. And it seems to be, you know, perhaps sort of, you know, early on in the system, the sort of 13th, 14th century, actually, you do get a fair spread of, of, of people from different, different, uh, you know, sort of different, different backgrounds, whereas it, it really then starts to narrow and it does tend to be perhaps something that becomes a, a bit more of a, you know, hoops to be jumped through and people who kind of know the secrets and can, can, can work out a way, way to pass. There's simply some, some sort of su- suggestion uh, around that, that, yeah, the, the, the backgrounds of people know. They even have quotas, regional quotas, to, to, to ensure that one region doesn't dominate. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's fascinating uh, kind of how many parallels there are, that it's, it's such a long time ago and a, and a different culture. But I think so many, so many similarities with, I think, what anyone working in exams in this country would, would really, really recognise. 
there's the most the guy who has the worst exam result with the most consequences in history. Right. Yeah, we can't go, we can't do this without mentioning um, Hong Zhukan. I think you've got to mention him if we've talked about the elite overproduction and exam failures and, and what happens there. So who's he? So he is he's a kind of mid nineteenth century exam taker. He's one of the exam takers we talked about. And the other thing I failed to mention is uh, another thing that might make you feel grateful today is with in China it's not like you take these exams at sixteen or eighteen you fail and it's like I'll right, we'll just move on with your life. You can keep taking them again and again and again. And people do keep taking them again and again and again. And there's people who go on into their 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, they, they keep retaking them. Um, and Hong Zhukan's one of these guys. His family have invested in education in his kind of first round of local exams. He comes first, but then he gets onto these later stages and he doesn't do as well. And he fails them four times. Okay, so he fails that kind of next step four times, that step to kind of get you the, the, the job. And, and over this time, he's been introduced to Christianity. There's a lot of American missionaries in China at that time. So he's been introduced to Christianity, reads some pamphlets. And I think when he fails the, the exam for the fourth time, he has this vision which convinces him he's the younger brother of Christ. Ah, uh, it's the um, Taiping Rebellion, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's the Taiping Rebellion, yeah. Um, and he inspires a number of people to follow him. It's a Taiping Rebellion, which I think actually nowadays people say maybe it should be called a Taiping Revolution or Taiping Civil War. I think Rebellion in many ways underplays it. It's astonishing. Um, it's, you know, it's I think between 1850, 1864, about you know, between 30 and 50 million people die. Mm. Um, and, and, and when it's its most powerful, you know, he is running the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, um, which rules over about 30 million people. It's got a capital and it actually has the trappings of a, of a, of a, a state itself, including, it seems, examinations. Um, so nice. uh, examination, examination, not, <laughs> yeah, not, not of the Confucian classics, but of a translation of the Bible that he's made. Right. Um, this is a gift so, to you, Tom. Christianity finding its way mm-hmm. even into exams. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I was. That's why I wanted to ask about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for anyone, uh, I mean, anyone kind of you know failing their A levels, that's mm-hmm. that's quite yeah. a path to go, isn't it? Under Heavenly Shaman, Kingdom, setting up your own rebellion. State. Yes, yeah. slaughter millions, killing fifty million people. Yes. Um, do you think um, so, so? So this influences presumably the West. You, you said that. Should we take a break now, and then when we come back, look at the evolution of the exam system in in the West? Would that be a good plan? Sounds good to me. So, if you'd like to um, stop writing, please lay down your pens, uh, and we'll give you your second paper in about three minutes. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, The exam starts in a couple of minutes. Pens at the ready, please. We are going to be talking about exams in the West. So, Daisy, your first question. Um, What about monks and things like that? So, presumably, they had tests of some... I mean, there must have been some sense of a test before the Gladstonian reforms of the 19th century. So I think the big thing, the sort of medieval religious kind of equivalent, is um, they have the disputatio, disputation, medieval disputation, where... You're having monks who have uh, kind of these big kind of oral arguments with each other about big theological questions. And I think that's probably the forerunner of today's viva, um, things like that. As I say, I think what you kind of lack uh, in the West before the sort of 18th, 19th century is anything that's really kind of standardised. Um, anything that's, that's and, and not just standardised, but also, and this is where the China thing comes in, it's scalable. So people even nowadays like the idea of a viva. And I think back in the 19th century, when the Royal Society of Arts was coming up with um, its, its exams, they said, well, these written exams are good. But to be really sure the results are right, you would also want to call the students in for a viva. You know, do you want to talk to them? And this is, again, one of the challenges. And it's, again, one of the challenges China had. It's one of the challenges that exam, people in exams today have. You know, it's my day job is something we do all the time. That What do you do when you want to scale up? So you can definitely see how having a viva might be the best way of doing something. So Daisy, just and, for listeners who are not yeah, British, yeah. who are not familiar with the term, what's what is a viva? So I, th- I think nowadays you have them for PhDs, and you would, uh, you know, it's where you're having basically a kind of an oral interview. So you've got um, maybe a, a panel of people who are experts in the subject. You've maybe written your dissertation, you've written your essay, and you're being questioned on it in depth. Uh, and so if, if you want to do something that's, as I say, really, really 
in-depth and thorough and it's very hard to cheat on that's the thing people say about about survivors as well quite hard to cheat not impossible but hard <laughs> to cheat uh then they kind of feel like a, a real gold standard but they're very hard to scale up obviously yeah. um and also they are even you know they have their benefits they're still kind of hard to, to standardize and one of the things you know one of the tensions as i say running all the way through the whole history of exams china us uk is this issue of standardization and, and reliability and consistency um, and it pulls you in different directions so in china they have this uh, essay that's called the eight-legged essay and it's an essay that it's really set out really strictly kind of what you have to write in each bit so it's got these eight parts and over time it just becomes quite pedantic and a bit a bit of a, a hoop to jump through and it's so similar when you read the critiques of it to the critiques people have today of exams that are, are very nitpicky and rubrics that are very nitpicky. And, you know, actually the history GCSE exam is often one that really comes in for this kind of criticism of if you don't use the word significance or bias, you just can't get the mark. Whereas if you use the word significance, you get the mark. But people will say, you know, you could have written nonsense. Well, as I say, this is a debate that's going back a, a really long way. Um, you know, to what extent, how standardised you have to be to get the reliability. And if you have, um, you know, too far down that route, do you sacrifice kind of the meaning or in the technical terms, do you sacrifice the validity of the exam? So how do how do exams start to, to be introduced into, is, is it Germany that, that blazes yeah. the, the trail? So again, yeah, Germany, they introduce, um, it was, actually it's Prussia. Um, so it's Prussia. So in 1788, they introduced the Abitur. Um, and that's a kind of exam that's required for university entrance and that's still used today. And then again, not only are lots of people in Britain looking at China, but they're very much looking at Prussia. So Prussia state reform to this moment are having a really big impact uh, in, in, in the UK. And in fact, um, it's not just kind of the, the, the school exams that are having a big impact, but Prussia, I think after the, you know, skip forward a century, after the, um, the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, uh, even before then, there's been a lot of British people looking at the uh, Prussian army, looking at the British army, thinking, hang on a minute. <laughs> and so not only do Prussia have the, the school exam in 1788, but they're also probably the, their professional army is something that encourages the British to get rid of the purchase of commissions in the army. We were doing we, we were doing our statue walk, Tom, and we came across the Duke of Cambridge who opposed all this. Yes. You no, know, he said that. So, yeah, there's a huge controversy in the mid-19th century. So the, the guy who's really in, more in favour of them, of, of getting rid of them, is um, Garnet Wolseley. Um, and he's kind of one of the figures behind the Cardwell reforms of, uh, again, sort of late 1860s, early 1870s. He very much thinks, you know, you need to professionalise army recruitment, the purchase of commissions, you know, it's got to go. So I think the purchase of commissions does go in 1871. And Wolseley is, is, is satirised in, um, in Gilbert and Sullivan's um, model of a modern major general. Yeah. And oh, right, if you think, right. if you remember the lyrics of the model of a modern major general, it's about this general who knows this fantastic amount of, of stuff. You know, the, the the you know the facts about the squares on the hypotenuse, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the, it's it's based on Wolseley, who was very keen on 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 professionalising and and having you know more formal re- recruitment and and, and and education for army officers, and not just having people people buying commissions. So. Yeah, you've got it. It's a, it's a real theme throughout the 19th century, both with the army and in education. And Daisy, exams are all about this. I mean, you need a, a state, don't you? It's all about state power and, and a, imposing a kind of uniformity, isn't it? And sort of you need somebody 
to you need somebody at the center who decides what it is that people need to study and what they need to be assessed on. You need an apparatus to roll it out. You need everyone buying into the same system. So this is what's really interesting is that you could argue that in, in actually in, in England, maybe you don't. <laughs> and so that the, the really interesting thing, and not just about exams, but the whole English education system in the 19th century is it centralizes very, very late. Uh, you get central kind of state oversight and state funding of, of education generally very late. And that's because of religion. Right. That's that's not because there isn't a will. There is a will from a lot of different groups. But the thing stopping it is that almost the state comes along too late and you've got a lot of different religious groups who have been self-funding their own schools, their own exams. Um, and so, you know, there's this reluctance to say, well, if you're going to put taxpayer funding in it, then I'm a non-conformist. And that means that some of my tax money is going to go to the Catholic Church. I'm not happy about that. And even as late as the 1940s, you've got critics of the Butler Act who are objecting. And the phrase they use is it's Rome on the rates. Okay, and that's as late as the 1940s. So that is actually one of the reasons I think, you know, sort of, uh, again, why in England, people often look now at the fact we've got all these different exam boards. And often, you know, I'll talk to sort of people from outside the English system. I say, this is mad. How can you have all these different exam boards? And I think even Michael Gove, when he was education minister, was a bit unhappy about it and felt it was leading to dumbing down a race to the bottom. But the reason we have all these different exam boards is kind of a legacy of that. It's the and, and John Strickman also talks about this on liberty. He's he's another person who's really in favour, massively in favour of education, massively in favour of exams. But because he's also in favour of liberty, <laughs> he's really wary about the state imposing exams, imposing a curriculum, imposing schools. And he comes up with all these ways around it, both in terms of the funding. You know, it's a book on liberty. He spends a lot of time talking about how you're going to get education and funding of education without uh, you know, tyranny. Yeah. Um, and so one of the legacies of this is you do have still kind of the remnants of all these local exam boards that sprung up in the 19th century. And what you also had is um, lots of universities. So you're saying, like, does it need a state? Well, the first, you know, the, the thing that a lot of people in England will think of as the first big exams were actually set in 1858 by Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and they were set, they were called local exams. And they were set for students who weren't part of the university for 16 and 18 year olds, um, that they could have a certificate to show what they'd studied. So actually, in England, you know, you don't have the kind of state states sort or of running it in the way you, you might think. But so, so before eighteen eighteen fifty eight, how how are people getting to Oxford and Cambridge? So so, so you you go to a, a you know a Harrow or Eton or whatever or rugby. Is it just you know you? So it's a, from from what I can see, it's, a, it's just a bit. Again, it's a bit. It's very English. A bit ad hoc. It's a bit hodgepodge. You've got um, you know colleges that have certain links with certain schools, and they will have certain places for them. You so have they lots don't, of you don't have to do an exam or anything. You just there, there are exams. That, so I think Trinity is the first Cambridge College to bring in exams, and I think they do bring them in in the eighteenth century. So so yes, you do have some examples of exams coming in earlier than that, but you have still a lot of, as I say, sort of these interviews and. These, this famous examples, you don't know how true they are, of, you know, the, 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 the Lord of whoever's son turning up. And the question on his interview is, well, how's your father? And he gets in, you know. So this is what I'm saying about standardisation. Right. You don't feel like the interviews are being run on a, a sort of standardised protocol with a rubric marks out of or whatever. Um, so, so I think the exams are coming in gradually and some colleges are bringing them in before others. Um, but it's 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 kind of patchy and ad hoc and and and, and then, and then um, not state not not centralised. You start to get kind of London universities, which mm-hmm. are reacting against the Oxbridge monopoly with its emphasis on classics, and starting to kind of introduce science and absolutely and so the calling things the, like that the, 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 idiocy the, the, idiocy yeah. <laughs> so the judgment around what you should study is also huge. Yeah. And so even when people say, okay, we'll have exams, that doesn't end the debate. 
because the debate is then, well, what should we have on the exams? And you have the famous uh, Northcote Trevelyan report, um, which is, I think, 1854. So again, really similar to all the time, all these things are happening. And Northcote Trevelyan, that's about entry to the civil service. And that's all about how, you know, you've got there's too much nepotism in, in civil service entry and how you need to put it on at this more professional re- recruitment basis and you need to have exams. But that just opens up the can of worms about, well, what should be on the exam? And there's been a lot of modern critiques who have said, well, in the end, they, they sh- you know, they, they, they went too far down that route of, of classics and, and um, uh, kind of not enough down the route of the sort of professional uh, knowledge and, and training that you might need to, to, to be a good civil servant. You can't and come again, on this podcast I, and talk about going yeah. too far down the route of classics <laughs> to, to Tom Holland. But again, that, that mirrors what you see in China, because in China... You, you know, the, the exams are the Chinese, the classical Chinese and the Confucian classics. But that went and well for several, several centuries. It did. It, yeah. it perhaps, you know, by the time it ends in 1904, 1905, doesn't end. It's not going great. Well. Yeah, all right. But Fair point. It, the, it, the bit it, when it, they collapse into right. rival warlords, that, 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 that didn't work so well. Look, oh, well, it's, it's a detail, it. a detail. <laughs> and, and people are saying then in the 19th century, you have a lot of Chinese reformers who are saying, we have to reform these exams, we have to reform the content of what's on them. We need more science, you need more technology. And, and actually, weirdly, that ends up being the, the same thing that people uh, are saying uh, about the, the British civil service. And, and I think a lot of people would, would still make that, that critique now. They would say there's not enough of, of that. And there's a very interesting story as well about the, um, I think, you know, Haleybury, Haleybury College, which actually its full name, I think, is Haleybury and Imperial Service College, which is, I think, set up to recruit civil servants for the East India Company. Which Clement Attlee goes to, right? Clement Attlee. Uh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. And there's a talk that actually it should also form the basis, what they do, they should form the basis of what you do to recruit for the British civil service. But I think that gets kind of, that, that doesn't quite work out. Uh, and you end up with something that's much more, much more sort of classical, classical literature, uh, classical languages, you know, something that's much more focused on that. Um, so, yeah, the, the content, you're absolutely right to say that the content of what's on exams is something that, that really is thought about. And, and Daisy, do you have... You mentioned 1858. Am I right in thinking you have something there? You have an exam paper. So I have in front of me. Um, you see, you see, listeners, yeah. how how desperate Dominic is to be examined, <laughs> show off his knowledge. It's appalling. It's like he's eight years old in his. Yeah. Um, Let's scrap the chat and get straight again. to the questions. Come on. <laughs> so I have. So, so Daisy, I hope you heard that Dominic yeah. is volunteering for this. I'm. Uh, I'm going to say. <laughs> No, I think we should, have a, out, I think it should be competitive. I think it should out. be competitive. The loser <laughs> bows out of the rest is history. <laughs> so I have a copy in front of me of the 1858 examination papers. So these are the for, by the University of Cambridge. So these, as I say, are, are kind of the these these local exams. They're set for 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 for, for students to sit in in their school in these local or these, these local centres. They're set by the University of Cambridge and, and marked by them. Um, and it's sort of seen yeah, as a sort of a, a, a bit of a landmark moment. These are. Uh, a really, really, really big moment in the history of exams in in, in England, and uh, they've all the subjects. I'm just flicking through them. We've got uh, English composition, we've got English history, which again, Dominic, I'm sure you're going to be keen. Yeah, on. I'd be, I'd be, uh, I'm confident. I'm very confident on English we've history. Got, we've got geography. We've got um, Virgil. Oh, geography. We've got a paper on Virgil. I'm not um, doing so Virgil. Got, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have chosen that. Tons I, here. <laughs> I, I will point out. There's one interesting thing. I remember when I started teaching. Um, I te- taught English. Used to be a teacher, and uh, you notice that the exam papers would always really reflect what was in the news. And I remember starting to teach <laughs> in two thousand and seven, and uh, all the all the students, I think they'd written a kind of coursework essay on the smoking ban because the smoking ban had just come in, and so they were all giving their pros and cons of the smoking ban. And what's really interesting is that 
that seems to just always been the case that you, you do that. So I've got here Wednesday, December 15th, 1858, English composition. So no smoking ban questions. But what's the first question? Give an account of the late Indian mutiny. Oh, I'd love uh, that. So, I'd be well up so, that. <laughs> don't do that one. I mean, that might take a bit of time, Dominic. Um, so, go, no, go on, Dominic. Question. Give us an second account question. of the Indian mutiny. <laughs> I refer you to I refer you to William Dalrymple's appearance on The Rest Is History just a few weeks ago. <laughs> so you've got you've got number two. Contrast yeah. the life of a soldier with that of a sailor, both in peace and war. Okay, that's uh, good. That's a good number one. Three, that's quite broad. Ri- write a letter to a friend in Australia announcing your intention to emigrate and asking you for information. <laughs> I think that's so 1858. I just think that's so 1858. And finally, what do you think the fourth one is? Discuss the change produced in the habits of the people by railways. Uh, oh, what I love wow. is railways. That's very topical. Yeah. So the Australian one, I would do that. You know what I'd do? I'd write yeah. to Mr. McCorber. He would be my friend. <laughs> He's, yeah. He immigrated to Australia, didn't he? I'd write to him. Yeah. yeah. I could Not tell him Magwitch. there's something. You, you would pick I would say something had turned yeah. up. Um, yeah. I would... <laughs> I would ask him for repayment yeah. of the loan that I had made just yeah. before he left the country. I've got it all planned, and, and I'm sure I, if Dickens was marking, I'd do very well. No, F, F. <laughs> <laughs> Derivative. So I would say the English composition probably hasn't changed that much in terms of it's a topical topic. You've got to write, you've got to find, find something happening in the news, write about it. Like I remember in 2012, everything seemed to be about the Olympics. You had to write something about the London Olympics. I looked up some from the 1950s and there's some then that are all about the Festival of Britain. You know, tell us what you think yeah. about the Festival of Britain. So that is actually one that maybe hasn't changed as much, but some of the others I think have really changed. Um, I think geography is very much... Um, Oxbow Lakes? Do they have Oxbow Lakes? I did they, Oxbow they, Lakes. No, no, there's that's, no that's Oxbow the Lakes. Oh, I'm just damn. looking at the geography paper and it's all drawing... Oh, no, so they've got... Explain the following geographical terms, but Oxbow Lake is not one of them. But there's oh, a okay. lot of, you know, where's draw a map, where's this, where's that. You see, that's proper geography. That is geography. Yeah. To, me, to me, that's not outdated at yeah. all. That's completely reasonable. No, but geography but geography's gone wrong now because it's all about, you know, dreary <laughs> yeah. stuff that nobody cares yeah. Capital cities and flags. Draw an outline map showing the coastline of Europe from the mouth of the Danube to the mouth yeah. of the Rhine. Mark That's the chief brilliant. rivers and the chief ranges of mountains between those two rivers and the coast. <laughs> I think, I'm, you know, you're going to have to submit your papers here. Um, describe accurately the situation of the following places. Genoa, Londonderry, Mecca, Rio de Janeiro, Singapore. Mecca. I mean, that's a controversial mm. one. Describe in words the course of one of the following rivers, mentioning the chief towns upon its banks, the yes, Thames, this is the Severn, the Rhone, the, Dan- the Danube. This is, this is why Victorian Britain was great. But these sort of <laughs> questions... everything's gone wrong since. But these sort of questions endure for quite a long time, though, didn't they? Because I've got here, I downloaded yep. overnight yep. an exam paper from 1950, um, yep. a history paper, right? So this is a Scottish leaving certificate exam. So kind of similar age group, I guess, Daisy. Um, I think I, I, I was really wanting to ask Tom some of these questions. So question four, for example, what changes did Henry VIII make in regard to the church and for what reasons? That's interesting. It's a Scottish question. That's a, such a massive <laughs> question. Isn't it? Next I question. Mean, yeah. I mean, how about this? Uh, wait, wait. Trace the chief steps in the development of South Africa from the Great Trek to the Union Act of 1909. How, how do you think you do with that, Tom? Um. I might look at another question. What were the reasons for the collapse of Napoleon's empire? Yeah, I could do that. Could you do that? Yeah. Could you really do that? Overconfidence. 
describe <laughs> describe the domestic <laughs> and the problems. glories of the British Navy. Describe the domestic problems that faced the British government from 1905 to 1914, and explain the measures they took to solve them. Can you do that? I could probably have a crack at that because I've yeah, listened a, to you on the causes of the First World War. That's so a strange I, death of liberal England, isn't it? It's suffragettes, just, trade yeah. unionism, Ireland. Ireland, yeah. And then here's one for Ted Valance, who we had on talking about Magna Carta. Outline the events in John's reign that led up to Magna Carta and explain briefly the importance of that document. Making sure to give the dates of King John's reign. Yeah, well, he didn't know, did he? <laughs> so he would have done badly despite being a professor of history. But what's interesting about that, it's a Scottish exam paper, but so many English questions. Um, yes. So yes. Scottish so, listeners will say this is an example of the totalitarian, you know. Yes. The, so um, there's been a move away from that. There has. Uh, there um, has, hasn't there? And it's all kings and battles. I mean, this is 1950. So well, it's 1066 and all that. I mean, they parody that, don't they? Well, they do. That's 1066 and all that. Yeah. The Victorians would recognise that as completely reasonable, but probably exams have changed far more in the intervening period in, from then till now than they did in the hundred years previous. Do you think that's true, Daisy? Uh, I would say, yeah, I, I think that probably is true. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. So again, I sort of spent a bit of time in the Cambridge Assessment Archive looking at the O-levels in the 1950s. Um, and, and again, the, yeah, the history, if you compare them to the 1858 ones, I think there are a lot so, of similarities. Um, certainly the geography and the history are much more kind of lists of facts. Looking so at maps. Daisy, yeah. the, I guess the, the argument, um, say, for example, of a, a Daily Mail columnist, I, I, Where I mean, could such a person no be names, found? Mentioning the name, <laughs> but there is a kind of harumph every time um, GCSE A level results come out that that they're not as difficult as they used to be. Um, are you in a position? <laughs> yeah, I know what Tom I, wants you to say. Everyone I, knows what Tom wants you to say, <laughs> Daisy. <laughs> um, have exams got more difficult? Have they got easier? Are they basically the same? Can we so can, this, can, can we measure them? This is a great question and one that I could probably spend an entire podcast on. Um, it is really surprisingly hard to answer the question. Um, and in fact, one of, we've looked at exams really through a very kind of historical, political lens, an educational lens. Another interesting way of looking at exams actually is as a branch of measurement. And there are actually some really interesting overlaps between, if you like, the development of the history of temperature, um, the history of measurement of temperature, the measurement of time. There's actually some, some really interesting overlaps there. But one of the, the challenges with, with, with the measurement and, and trying to work out if standards have, 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 have changed, I'll, I'll say, um, is there's just a number of issues. So, so one is what we all want to do is look at the questions, don't we, as we've just done, and go, well, that question's really hard. Uh, there's a professor of history at the moment who couldn't answer that question. Ergo, exams are getting easier. But the big problem is you can't just look at the questions I've got this whole book of questions, but how do you know that the kids who took them then, actually, how do you know they, they didn't do really terribly? How do you know, actually, they just left blank papers? They didn't have a clue. <laughs> so we're all sitting also, here it's saying, kind of rote learning, is, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of rote learning dates of kings and queens. The next critique is, is that. The next critique. So, so first of all, the first reason why it's hard is you can't just look at an exam paper. You need responses. And we don't have enough responses that you have these archives of question papers, but you don't have enough archives of responses. So that's one problem. The second problem is what you've just said, is that exams have really changed their focus. And so, you, you know, you, someone might look and say, well, OK, so so a kid didn't do well on these questions about the dates of whatever. Someone might look at that and go, well, I don't care. I think history is more than that. So mm -hmm. uh, you might have a very talented history student today who would, wouldn't do well on that exam, but they're still better at history because our notion of what history is has changed. Now, I'm not sure how much I would buy that with history, but I would probably buy it with other subjects. 
what we now call biology, which in here is probably more zoology, that's changed its focus. And I think entirely legitimately, I don't think anyone would argue with, with that because we just know more now. So the other problem is you've got subjects changing. That makes it harder to compare. And the other problem you've got is that these exams from the past are often aimed at a very different slice of pupils. So these exams at the past were often being taken by a fraction, a segment of the population. The modern GCSE is taken by everybody. Even the old O-level was only really been taken by 20, 25% of the cohort. And that changes the way you set up your grading. Yeah, because the exam is, the, 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 the process is so much broader. Right. So just imagine if you've got, um, you know, when you've got grades, you've maybe got five or 10 or nine or however many grades you've got to award. If you're going to award that grade set to the top 10% of the population, it's going to look very different. The top grade is going to be awarded to a very different fragment of people than if you're awarding a grade set to 100% of the population. That's just going to happen. Yeah. So you've got to factor all those things in. So I'm getting all my excuses in up front. But notwithstanding that, you can do some interesting comparisons, even with all of those, those, those caveats. And the person who carried out a really, really interesting study into this is actually a colleague of mine. And he used this technique I talked about, comparative judgment. So his name is Dr. Chris Whedon. And he did this paper back in 2016 with uh, some colleagues. Um, so it's not just him, uh, a group of them. And what they were trying to address is the question. To, to, so to, to, to address one of these problems about exams changing their focus and content, they picked a subject that hasn't changed as much. They picked uh, mathematics A-level, where you do have sort of a bit more stability in, in the kind of questions being asked. And they also did have some archive responses. And they used this technique, comparative judgment, to compare the difficulty of the question the diff- and the, the, the responses over time. And they actually got foreign maths PhD students to judge it. So it was students who kind of didn't know about the English system. The students didn't know why they were taking part in this. They didn't know that it was about standards over time. So it's a really clever study they set up. And I will say now up front that it won the 2016 British Educational Research Journal Paper of the Year. So it's a really, you know, I'm not just saying it because it's my, my colleague, it's a really clever paper, really well done. And they were comparing maths A-level responses from 1964, 1968, 1996 and 2012. And they were saying, have the standards changed? And what they found was that between 1964 and 1968, there wasn't much change. Between 1996 and 2012, there wasn't much change. Between 1968 and 1996, they found the standard that would have received a grade E in 1968 would have got a grade B in 1996. Wow. That so, really surprises that's me. That's punchline. <laughs> so I was so, expecting, because yeah. you were yeah. almost setting it up there, and I thought you were going to say, oh, that just debunks the idea that things have changed. This shows that actually we're cleverer now than we are. But actually, that's a massive drop of standards, right? It, right. So I, I, again, I do want to caveat it, is that it, over that same time, you had many more people sitting the A-level. And yeah. so, yes, I think it is fair to say grades have changed in meaning. I yep. think that is absolutely fair to say. And I'd almost say you would expect that if you have that many more people kind of taking them. But actually, that doesn't necessarily mean that underlying attainment is is falling or rising. It does mean the grade has changed its meaning. Right. It doesn't mean we're getting stupider or cleverer. It, it's well, not enough there to, to say that. But it but, does mean the grade has changed in meaning. But going back to specifically history, yeah. um, there's no doubt that what people study has changed you know, very dramatically. So looking at this paper, that the 1950 paper, and thinking about what I did at GCSE, because I was one of the earliest GCSE people. I mean, I can remember we got to do an empathy exercise. I mean, empathy was very big in our 
teaching. And, you know, I had to write a letter pretending that I was a housewife in Hamburg explaining why I was going to support the Nazi party uh, in 1933. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of exercise that would have been unthinkable in 1950, let alone 18, you know, obviously in the 1860s or something. I mean, so you're not really, I mean, maybe you are testing light with light with maths. You are comparing light with light, but you're definitely not doing that, are you, with history? Because history, the, the emphasis within history has changed so much. So that's absolutely why it's a challenge to make these comparisons. And that's why you can do it yeah. with something like maths. As I say, I think you could do it with English composition, as they call it then. Um, and I think there have been a few attempts to, to, to kind of do that as well with writing standards, because the, the, you know, the, the subject, the question you're asking isn't changing as much. But I think you're absolutely right with something like history or geography. It would be more difficult. You would. Uh, yeah, it, it would be it would it would be more difficult because because of all the reasons that you said, and and again, not just history. There'll be a number of other subjects where the, the content of what you you, you were assessing has, has changed so much. So so Daisy, um, we're probably running out of time, and uh, the invigilator will take away our papers. But um, just two questions prompted by kind of recent events. One is, um, do you think the experience of the pandemic has sharpened people's sense of the value of exams or led them to question it? Do you think that um, the system will be the same as it was in 2019 when we come out of the pandemic? And the other one is just to go back to um, the, the question of elite overproduction, but may, just maybe the first one first. Sure. So I think what you see here is I, I find there's a, quite an interesting division between people, I would say, who are kind of on the on the outside of education and people who are actually probably teachers and in the system, <laughs> which is that there have been quite a few calls. I mean, a group of education ministers, former education ministers came together recently and said, the pandemic's shown us that exams don't work and we need to abolish GCSEs. Now, most of the teachers I talk to think the pandemic's shown you that exams for all their flaws are, are really necessary because the, we, we've had two years without exams and I, I, I can't imagine how you would look at that and say what we've had in those two years has been an improvement. Um, right. It's been okay. really messy. And I think the big issue you have is there's lots of legitimate critiques of exams. Absolutely, there are. And some of those, as I say, date back to China. The great problem you have when trying to replace them with anything, it's a bit like democracy. There's a lot of critiques of democracy at the moment. What are you going to do instead of them? And when you all of the alternatives you come up with seem to have all the flaws of exams plus some new ones. So what you've seen this year and last year with the teacher assessment is the teacher assessment, sort of many issues with it, I think, but... One of the big issues you have with it is that poorer students, disadvantaged students, students with um, behavioural issues, students with special educational needs, all tend to do worse on teacher assessment than on exams. And people are often really surprised when I say that. They, they say, no, it's the other way around. You're wrong. It must be the other way around. And it's not. There's a, a huge research body on this. Um, and it's to do with the similarly big research bodies on human bias. And the thing I say, teachers are biased not because they're bad people. They're biased because they're human. And, and lots of things that involve human judgment do have those those biases built into them. So, as I say, that's one of the 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 the, the, the best evidence findings in in the assessment literature. So that the the great problem you have if you want to rely on just the kind of pure teacher assessment we've had in these past two years as a we've had it because of necessity, is that it doesn't really give you that level playing field. And and exams certainly have their problems. And I'm not pretending that exams are the, the perfectly level playing field either. But again, it's, uh, I'd say of all the different alternatives, they're the ones that, that are probably the best. So I think there are lots of people who are saying, well, the pandemic shows that we've, we've got to change things. But my argument would be the pandemic shows us that when we can't run exams, we have real problems. So I, I would say I think we need them. 
And I think we'll still be using them in years to come. And so just on the back of that, kind of looking at the broad context of what we've been talking about generally, do you think in, in, in the future that, that exams will serve the cause of social mobility or, or entrench existing divisions? So that is a great question, so obviously, and, and, and it is hard to say. And as I say, I, I don't want to pretend that exams are perfect and that they are this perfect engine of social mobility. Again, I think it is really interesting to look back to China, where I think you can argue that there's a phase in their history where they probably were working as you would want them to work. And then there was a phase where, where they weren't. And, and I think you can see something similar probably in the modern Western system of exams, that you can see there are ways where they do work as they're meant to. There are ways where they don't. Um, I, I think there are real issues around the, the content of what should be on exams and whether what is on exams is preparing students for, for the world. I think that's absolutely a legitimate question. So I think that you want reform of that. That seems to me it can be sensible. I think the other um, big issue you have as well is... Um, um, yeah, I think there is an issue around if they do just become, if you like, box ticking, hoop jumping exercises. Uh, and I think if you do get too much almost kind of over-reliance on rubrics, I think that can decay confidence in them. And I think that also means they're probably not doing their job of actually giving students the, the knowledge and skills they need to, 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 to get by in the world. So they become almost uh, something that's separate from, from the education. They can become a bit detached from it. They become a means, you know, a, a means to an end of, on, on their own. I think that is, is, a, is a real problem. And I think that's the kind of thing, we talked about this happening in China, where you, you then can get that, that dominance of them. And I think there's that feeling that, well, um, you know, maybe private schools have this secret, secret source where they can just get their, their pupils to, to kind of jump through these hoops. So I think it is really important that they're, they're fair and there's a level playing field. And I think it's really important they're perceived to have that. And I certainly think there's, there's ways we could reform them so that they do a better job there. And, and I do share the concerns of people who say if we don't make some of those reforms, then it's not just a problem for the exam system, but it is a problem for society because of that outsized role that exams play in our life. But Tom, uh, if, if elite overproduction is your concern and you think that elite overproduction leads to... Um, well, no, it's not a concern. It leads to unrest, right? Then greater social mobility in exams wouldn't solve that. It would just mean that a different part of the overproduced elite was satisfied... That's, that's- and right. So, so Peter Turchin, his argument is you don't want to be making, you don't want to be getting uh, all these uh, uh, meritocrats striving for the top role. You actually need some way of damping down competition. Yeah, uh, that his, would be his more, argument. He takes that the, quite kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, uh, I would say the makes, implication yeah. of that argument is yeah. actually well, just educate, going, educate, <laughs> stop, stop educating so many people because oh that just. I mean, you could laugh, but that's surely no the, nonsense. But that's surely the that's surely the obvious conclusion, right? If you unless you're going to magically create the jobs for the people to go to, then the if if, if elite overproduction is your fear, then the issue is elite overproduction. I stop producing so many elite people, or produce more elite jobs. Well, you can't just unless you've got. Are you blessed with the magic wand that would create elite jobs out of nowhere? Well, that's why I need to become dictator. The other side of it is. <laughs> I suppose the other side of it is if you're not worrying about elite overproduction, but you're worrying about you want to get the very best talented people into jobs and into the top jobs. And if you want to do that, um, that would be good for everyone, because if you have the most talented people in the top jobs, then they're hopefully going to run things more competently and make better decisions. So that would be the alternative kind of sort of meritocratic argument that you do want the competition. You do want people competing. You want exams that do find who, who, who the most talented are and do also, uh, you know, give them the education they need. And, and that will be good for society. But also, I mean, there's a difference, isn't there? I mean, just to go back to, to whether exams are an end in themselves, the mm-hmm. more people are educated, the more they're in a position to create 
jobs and say the economy grows. That's gibberish. Not at all. Not at all. Because 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 if, if everything is funneled through the prism of examinations, and you know there are certain kind of I don't know Oxbridge colleges or something that that's seen as the absolute end, then of course there's a finite number. But if people people's education is better across the entire spectrum of society, then You're people have the knowledge. Jobs, then the magic people, wand does appear. Tom Holland's not, magic wand. It's not magic. <laughs> it's 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 sensible policies for a happier Britain. The best educated cabinet we ever had was the Wilson government of the 1960s. I mean, they were all mm-hmm. Oxford dons. They were all super mm-hmm. educated. Now, nobody, yeah, I mean, but, not but, even, but, but, them, they're not even their greatest fans, points to that government and says... No, but you're looking at it again through the prism of elites, through people going to Oxbridge. That's that's not the point. The point is that that if you, if you look at it, you know... The, there are exams you have to do. There are certain exams you do spectacularly well. You get the best prizes. That's the Chinese system. I mean, that's that's off. If if you look at things entirely through the prism of getting to universities, that's how we would look at it. But there is another way of saying that you take away the the whole apparatus of exams, and it's about learning, it's about knowledge, and it's about getting skills and understanding and perspectives that then enable you to kind of create your own your own context. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting point. And I'm going to throw something else into the mix here. It was another sort of China and John Stuart Mill point, which is when they were talking about exams for the civil service in the 19th century, John Stuart Mill said, um, I wouldn't want the best and brightest in the civil service. He said, if the exams meant that all of the best and brightest went to work in the civil service, that would be terrible. And he said it would be terrible because um, you would then have nobody outside the civil service would kind of have the capacity to solve their problems uh, because you just have everyone in the civil service uh, kind of doing it. He also then said that um, uh, you wouldn't have anyone with the capacity to check they were doing the right thing. Uh, so how would you check if there was any corruption or, or anything? And he also said, and this is his China, and he also talks about Russia, is that the problem you would have is you would have like a self-perpetuating oligarchy. Uh, and in some senses, when exam systems get too good, and again, you could argue this for China, they they, they do become self-perpetuating. And it gets really, really hard to uh, bring in any reform and change the content on what you're being examined. That's the argument behind Michael Young's book about the rise of the meritocracy. So he's the person who, Toby Young's father, wrote the 1945 Labour Manifesto. He co- he effectively coined the phrase meritocracy. But he was talking about that as a warning. He was saying you create this elite of meritocrats who are very, very well educated, who then think, you know, they're different from aristocracies or oligarchies because they think, I earned this. You know, I'm morally better than other people because I worked so hard and I'm so clever and and that argument is around a lot in politics at the moment that we've created, that there is this sort of self-conscious, middle-class, highly educated, meritocratic elite, you know, the winners and losers of society, you know, who think that they are not just luckier and cleverer than other people, but they are morally more deserving because they earned it through their own efforts, through passing exams, through precisely this point. You know what this um, entire episode shows that we've that, just degenerated into no, a rambling... What, what, it show, what it shows is that there is almost no topic more calculated to generate argument and disagreement and intense feelings than the subject of exams. Um, and Dominic, I'm going to... Yeah, I'm gonna, have the last word. You're going to have yeah, the last word. No, I'm not. I'm going to take your exam page. But Daisy, I, I can't thank you enough because I really think that the historical perspective does shed light on the timelessness of these, you know people's kind of very ambivalent attitudes towards exams um as exemplified by <laughs> by the way that this entire conversation is disintegrated um 
So I, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, thank uh, you, Daisy. That was fascinating. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Thanks, really, Daniel. really interesting. Thanks so much. Um, and we will be back uh, on Thursday with, as I said, beginning of the programme, Sherlock Holmes. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.